you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. documents an excerpt from a letter that Charles Beaumont wrote to Rod Serling. And Beaumont wrote, Here is a spec script I wrote some time ago for my own show, now gone the way of all good and decent projects. Dell says he likes it. Book, as usual, has more reservations than the combined Indian population of America. Though, if no one listens with the third and fourth ears, one seems to hear not an altogether unenthusiastic note in his tone. I, of course, love it dearly, and believe it could make a wonderfully entertaining and possibly moving show. If your reaction is favourable, we'll do it on the Twilight Zone. At the core of the story that we're going to be looking at tonight, there is a friendship between two men and sometimes in a friendship or a partnership or relationship they work not because the two people involved are similar in their personalities but because they're so different each person balances out the more extreme character traits of the other and in tonight's episode of the twilight zone we meet one such pair of friends jimbo and ace Ace is the hot-headed gambler, always looking for a faster way up the status ladder. And Jimbo, a simple, calm, mild-mannered man who seems to be happy to just go with the flow of life. But a freak occurrence when a car rolls off the road outside the diner that the two of them run puts Jimbo in a position where he has to reveal something about himself that even his best friend Ace never knew. He can move things with the power of his mind. But is he the prime mover that this episode title talks about? Well, possibly, if we look at the definition of the term, depending on where you read it, it could apply to either Jimbo or Ace. One definition defines it as one regarded as the initial source of energy towards a goal. Another defines it as a person who is chiefly responsible for the creation or execution of a plan. Now, if we want to get really into it, then we can go back and look up the origin of the term, and for that we have to go to Aristotle. And he believed that all movement depends on there being a mover, and for him, movement meant more than just something traveling from A to B. Movement also included change, growth, melting, cooling, heating, and so on. So he recognized that everything in the world is in a state of flux. Aristotle argued that behind every movement, there must be a chain of events that brought about the movement that we see taking place. And he argued that this chain of events must lead back to something which moves, but is in itself unmoved. 
and this is referred to as the prime mover. So that's all very heady stuff for something which is actually a pretty simple episode. So we'll leave that there for the moment and take a look at tonight's Twilight Zone, the prime mover. Portrait of a man who thinks and thereby gets things done. Mr. Jimbo Cobb might be called a prime mover, a talent which has to be seen to be believed. In just a moment, he'll show his friends and you how he keeps both feet on the ground and his head in the twilight zone. First broadcast on the 24th of March, 1961. Written by Charles Beaumont, but based on an unpublished story by George Clayton Johnson and directed by Richard L. Bear. Now in his intro, Sailing used that very famous line, Portrait of a Man. Have we had that yet in the Twilight Zone intro? I'm not too sure. I can't remember. But as intros go, this has to be maybe one of the briefest that we've ever had. But it does say something. It talks about Jimbo, and it says he keeps his feet on the ground and his head in the Twilight Zone, which is what this episode is all about. So this short intro, I guess, is Rod Sailing standing back and giving the floor to two of the most respected writers of The Twilight Zone, a story by George Clayton Johnson, adapted into a teleplay by Charles Beaumont. So we're in a similar place with this one as the last George Clayton Johnson episode, A Penny for Your Thoughts, where Dick York's character got special powers from a coin. This time round, we're dealing with another person with special powers, Jimbo Cobb, played by Buddy Ebsen. But why have Charles Beaumont do the teleplay? Why not just have George Clayton Johnson do the whole thing? It was his story after all. But George Clayton Johnson explains it like this. He says, Charles Beaumont could get an assignment. He needed a story. He didn't have a story. None of his stories seemed suitable. He therefore bought from me my story. He paid me $600 for it. My name never ended up on the screen. It was an accident of production for which Buck Houghton apologised. I felt bad that my name wasn't on it, but I thought it was a good show. And that was to Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion. And Martin Grams Jr. elaborates in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And he says, I had to pitch the story first. Before I could do that, Charles Beaumont was a good friend and he would take my stories and make the script and sell it. Later, he would tell Buck that it was my story and Buck took notice. I would tell Rod and Buck different stories and most of the time they would shake their heads. No, no, George, why not this one instead? So I would suggest another story, how about this? And Buck would say, no, no, no. Buck would only hold those meetings once a month, so I gathered all my notions and notes and would pay him a return visit. If he liked the idea, but wanted me to do something with it, I went back home and worked on it. That was how I got to write for the series. Now, to get the plot moving, we have this car accident that Jimbo and Ace witness, and it's here that Jimbo has to reveal his powers. Now, the footage of the car crash that we see on screen is from a Robert Mitchum movie called Thunder Road from 1958. But
but as well as the Twilight Zone, this footage was also used in Invisible Invaders in 1959, and they saved Hitler's brain in 1963. How'd you do it, Jimbo? Oh, come on, Ace, let's forget it, huh? All right, if you want to keep secrets, okay, it's your business. Ace? Yeah. I'll tell you. I can't exactly explain it, Ace, but... Well, you see, I guess you might say it's a, it's a power I got. I can move things around just by thinking. Why? Oh, I know it sounds stupid, but I can. I don't know how come or why or anything, but I can. Like since when? Oh, like since always. I never thought there was anything special about it or anything. I thought, I thought everybody could do it, you know, like breathing. But I guess I was wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, how come I never seen you doing this before? Oh, I had to give it up. Why? Oh, you know, it got me in a lot of trouble in school, and then I started getting these real bad headaches after, like now. So after Ace makes Jimbo demonstrate his powers a couple of times, it doesn't take Ace long to hit on an idea. He's going to use Jimbo's powers to make them rich. All right, $100 on number eight. 100 Ace, that's all we've got. Shh, take it easy, kitty. Eight. <laughs> 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 Come on, give me that uh, What's the limit? What's the limit? $200. All right, 200 on four, 200 on black, and 200 on even. Ace, take it Shh, easy. Please, 200 on even, black and four. 200, four, black and even. Okay. There we go. Time to get a better. Four, black, <laughs> and even. <laughs> shovel it in, kid, shovel it in. Now, beyond the actual conception of the episode, there isn't a huge amount of trivia with this one, so let's take a bit of time out to meet one of our stars, Jimbo, played by Buddy Ebsen. Buddy's most famous role is probably Uncle Jed in the Beverly Hillbillies, which ran for an amazing 274 episodes, a very popular show at the time. But just to remember him for that is a disservice to a man who really did a lot in his career. He was born in 1908 and began his career as a dancer on stage. He had a vaudeville act with his sister Vilma and they performed on Broadway. They then went to Hollywood in 1935 and started to work in the movies. So you see how Buddy has had show business in his blood throughout his life and he was coming up in that golden age of Hollywood and he was getting carried along with it. He was a hard worker, he could sing, he could dance, he could act. He almost had the chance to showcase that in one of the most beloved movies of all time, The Wizard of Oz. He was originally going to be cast as the Scarecrow, but ended up being cast as the Tin Man. But unfortunately for him, the aluminium dust that was used to colour his face ended up poisoning him, and he had to drop out of the film, and his scenes were reshot. Now you can still hear his voice when him and Dorothy sing we're off to see the wizard and if you search online you can actually find Buddy's version of If I Only Had a Heart. 
When a man's an empty kettle, he should be on his mettle, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental concerning love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy that shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. Buddy Ebsen never really stopped working. He found TV success again as a private eye for eight seasons in the TV show Barnaby Jones. And in a funny little twist, when they remade the Beverly Hillbillies for another movie, he had a cameo in that movie playing Barnaby Jones. Now he had a great presence and a wonderful, likeable quality about him that makes him perfect for Jimbo and we'll talk a bit more about what I think makes him special later on. So our midsection in this episode is kind of like a montage of ace gambling and winning but Jimbo is gradually starting to feel the effects. Jimbo, how do you feel? I'm tired, I gotta sleep. Sleep? What's the matter with you? We're gonna do a town, have some fun. We just got started, come on. Well, I'll see you boys in the morning. Now look, don't you fold up on me. Honey, would you get him some aspirin? Oh yes, I've got some right here. I'll get some water. Come on, come on, I'll fix your head. Hey, yeah? Jeez. Yeah? I can't do it no more. Can't do what? It's wrong, Ace. It's cheating. Cheating's wrong. Jimbo, you're right. You mean it? We're gonna quit? Sure, Jimbo, we're gonna quit. Ace, you promise? Sure, kid, sure. After just one more time. Give me that. Hey, uh, Jimbo? Okay? One more time, is it okay? Well, okay, one more time. Uh, you take it easy and rest tonight, and tomorrow we'll fracture him. Ace's lady friend, Kitty Kavanagh, is played by Christine White. Christine was born in 1926 and spent about 23 years working in the business. She seemed to retire from acting in 1976 after a small part in the TV movie James Dean. Now she actually dated James Dean between 1951 and 1954. As I say she retired in 1976 but thankfully lived far beyond her retirement from acting and passed away in 2013. Her most famous role may just be her second Twilight Zone appearance where she played Julia Wilson, the wife of Bob Wilson, in the classic Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Now in this episode I don't think she has a great deal to do apart from being the long-suffering partner to Ace but what she does do, you know, she's great, she's fine, she's very sweet she's smart and all she really is given to do is to be the good girl for Ace to come back to after he starts to go off the rails and hooks up with the cigarette seller later on but I do think Christine has a a really nice presence you know very sweet. Now as I mentioned earlier the episode was written by George Clayton Johnson but it was Charles Beaumont who did the screenplay and the character of Kitty was an invention of Charles Beaumont's, as was Ace's next idea for winning some big money. One more thing. 
Who's the biggest gambler in town? Well, let's see. And I see. mean big, no limits. Well, I believe Mr. Nolan is visiting with us this week. Phil Nolan? Right. Well, you tell Phil Nolan that Ace wants to see him. Ace? Ace, Ace Larson, that's me. I live here. You tell him to call me tomorrow at the hotel and bring plenty of letters, and I mean this kind of letters. Okay? Okay. Live a little. We're gonna tear this town apart, honey. What do you say? Great, but will you wait till I get dressed? All right. But not too much. Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a television classic documents an interview with a gentleman called Jerry Saul. And in it, he says Charles Beaumont was the best. He was able to intimidate producers, something we all wish we could do. For example, he went to see a certain pilot. They were really anxious to get him to write for the show. The first thing he said to the producer was, you're what's wrong with television, and that pilot was a piece of... And the guy said, why, what's wrong with it? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Chuck then went on to some general things. When he got to the point where he said, now I've got a story for you, they were anxious and waiting to hear. He was able to do that with almost anybody, though not in the same manner. Now Ace is starting to go off the rails. You know, gambling in the casino is one thing, but he set up this game with Mr. Nolan. But we find out that Nolan is actually a gangster. Things are starting to get serious and Ace could be getting in over his head. Ace is played by Dane Clark. He was born Bernard Elliot Zanville in 1912 in Brooklyn, the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He graduated from law school, but when he had trouble finding work, he tried boxing, baseball, construction, sales, modeling, before finally settling on acting. And when he hit Hollywood, he claims that Humphrey Bogart gave him his name, Dane Clark. And he described himself as an average Joe type of actor. And he said, They don't go much for the pretty boy type at Warner Brothers. An average looking guy like me has a chance to get someplace. To portray people the way they really are without any frills. The only thing I want to do in films is be Mr. Joe Average as well as I know how. Of course anyone whose face appears often enough on the screen is bound to have Bobby Soxers after him for autographs. But what I really get a kick out of is when cab drivers around New York lean out and yell hi Brooklyn when I walk by. They make me feel like I'm putting it cross okay when I try to be Joe Average. So he never really became a leading man and if you look at his credits it's bit parts, smaller roles but like he said he liked being the everyman. He was handsome without being pretty. He looked like a bit of a rough guy who'd be handy in a fist fight and I think he has a lot of charisma too and I enjoyed him in this role as Ace. And I think it's a fine line because he could come off as being unlikable if he pushed that performance too far. He's only really a few notches below Rocky Valentine from the episode, a nice place to visit. You know, they're both those fast-talking, hustling guys. But Dane Clark manages to keep his performance at the right level, so there is somewhere to come back to if and when he does come back. Now in that pitch to Rod Serling, Charles Beaumont was mindful of that similarity and he said you'll note two similarities to A Nice Place to Visit, some parts of Ace's character and the gambling sequence. I don't think it's a troublesome thing 
but should it bother you we can fix it easily enough, as this was purely a labour of love, originally planned as the pilot script for my stillborn brainchild. I have no wish to part with it if the enthusiasm and joy that went into it are not echoed by all my Cayuga friends. Already Buck is mumbling to the effect he likes the basic idea and the characters and the business of moving things with the mind, but in sorting the peas from the succotash and putting different sauce on the steak or whatever it was, we should maybe tone down Ace's personality. So Ace sets up this meeting with Mr. Nolan and Jimbo is doing his thing, but Ace is getting a bit too hot and he's winning, but he's also starting to raise Mr. Nolan's suspicions. Go ahead. But remember this, Larson. People cheat on me just once. Understand? Sure. Now that we got that straightened out, am I covered? You're covered. Well, I guess this is my lucky day, huh, fellas? Hi. Hi, Sheila, baby. Are you taking like me? Who's the dame? Uh, my good luck charm, my sweetheart. Any objections? Mr. Nolan can't really prove anything, though, but at this point, Sheila walks into the room. And that has quite a big effect on Jimbo. You'll see in his face, he doesn't like it one bit. Sheila was the cigarette girl that Ace kind of hooked up with earlier on. But while Jimbo is loyal to his friend Ace, he's also loyal to his friend Kitty. So this is like the final straw for Jimbo that Ace has gone this far to replace Kitty so easily. And it's here that Jimbo's powers start to fail. Ace wants an 11 on a dice and Jimbo can't deliver it, so Ace loses all of his money. But it seems to be the wake-up call that he needs because when we next see him, he's getting the one-armed bandit taken from his diner and he's asking Kitty to marry him. And of course, the little twist is that Jimbo hasn't lost his powers at all, but it's probably for the best that Ace doesn't know that. I really like this episode, it's a simple story with a simple message and I don't think there are particularly deep layers to dig into, it's a tale well told and that's pretty much about it. What really brings it up a notch for me though is the relationship between these two guys, Jimbo and Ace. Like I said at the beginning, some relationships work because the people in them balance each other out and this story is pretty much what happens when that balance goes too far in favour of Ace. It's his personality that takes over the friendship. This power that Jimbo has might as well be Ace's power because he's using Jimbo for his own ends. And in that sense, Ace becomes the prime mover because it is him who's driving everything. But in the character of Jimbo, it's good to see someone who has been given a gift by the Twilight Zone, and to actually be in control of how and when he should use it. He does have his head in the Twilight Zone, but he's still got his feet on the ground. He goes along with Ace's plan so far, probably because he's his friend, but it never really sits right with him. And then it gets to the point where Jimbo knows he has to do something, because despite what Ace says, Ace will never stop. He'll keep going, he'll betray the people he loves, namely Kitty, he'll put himself and Jimbo in danger by gambling with gangsters. So Jimbo has to make a decision to restore that balance and bring Ace 
back down to earth. And it's throughout this that I really enjoy Buddy Ebsen's portrayal of Jimbo because he is so believable as that thoroughly good person and his chemistry with Dane Clark is really what makes this one a joy to watch. What I also like is it's one of those story concepts that asks the audience, what would you do? It is one of those great questions, what would you do if you could turn invisible? What would you do if you could read minds? What would you do if you could move objects with your mind? You know, I hate to say it, but while we all hope we'd be buddy, the temptation to be ace would be overwhelming. And maybe that's where this episode does touch real life to a degree. Abuse of power is abundant in this world, but unfortunately the balance that someone like Jimbo brings isn't always there. But let's not get too maudlin about that. This is a fun, enjoyable episode. And I think the reason why maybe it's not up there at the top of lists is that it doesn't really kind of speak to us on the level of something like walking distance, you know, that real deep human condition commentary that the Twilight Zone can often have. But there's nothing wrong with that. You know, sometimes a story well told is all it needs to be. And this is a simple story with a simple message and a simple moral from two of the Twilight Zone's finest, Charles Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson. Some people possess talent, others are possessed by it. When that happens, the talent becomes a curse. Jimbo Cobb knew right from the beginning. But before Ace Larson learned that simple truth, he had to take a short trip through the Twilight Zone. Now let's get some listener thoughts in submitted for your approval. I've had an email from Robin and he says, Hi, my name's Robin and I'm a fellow podcaster. I've podcasted about te several television shows at this point and presently covering the WB teen drama Dawson's Creek on the binge-watching podcast that I created called We Don't Want to Wait. The reason I write to you is because I just ran across a hidden series of Twilight Zone references in an episode that we recently covered. It was titled Eastern Standard Time and the subplot of the episode was that the title character Dawson and his girlfriend Gretchen spontaneously take a drive out of town. Dawson is very close to graduating high school and he is feeling like he needs to say goodbye to childish things and the stability of his teenage life, so a road trip is just what he needs. Unfortunately, he ends up getting a flat tyre and needs to find a repair shop. Well, he notices a sign for a nearby town called Willoughby and says, Great! walking distance and starts off to the town. When he and Gretchen get into town it seems pretty empty and Dawson remarks this is like an episode of the Twilight Zone. He finds a repair shop run by Irv, the mechanic played by Pat Hingle. The late Mr Hingle is known by most as Commissioner Gordon in the Batman movies but Twilight Zone fans know him as Horace Ford in the episode The Incredible World of Horace Ford. But when Irv finds out they have no money, he just leaves them back at their car 
without helping them, and the reference ends there. I just thought it was funny that the writer of the episode, Jonathan Kasdan, son of the great Lawrence Kasdan, must have had Twilight Zone on the mind while writing these scenes, and as Dawson is going through his teenage angst about becoming a man, Kasdan references Twilight Zone episodes with older men looking to escape the humdrum of their adult life and get back to simpler times. Also, it's funny that besides Dawson mentioning that this feels like a Twilight Zone episode, you would really have to be a fan to spot these nods. I had to laugh because I'm sure the Venn diagram of Dawson's Creek and the Twilight Zone fans is pretty small. Anyway, I just thought you might get a kick out of that trivia. Love the podcast, Robin. Well, thank you, Robin. I did get a kick out of it, to be honest. You know, there's so many shows out there that reference the Twilight Zone in some way that, um, you know, there's there's so many that I don't know about. So if anyone else knows about any references, then send them my way. Thanks for that, Robin. I had an email from Nick and he says, Hi, Tom. I just want to let you know that I enjoy the show and you keep me company, especially when I'm working at night. I just wanted to give my thoughts on some things. I haven't watched TZ in a while, but when I saw Static, I wasn't a big fan. However, after listening to your podcast, I realised how much I can relate to. I'm 34, so I wasn't around during Radio's heyday, but I can relate because I think you can say the same thing for TV. When I was a kid, there was so much TV, especially TGIF in, here in the US, Saved by the Bell, The Drew Carey Show, Third Rock from the Sun, Futurama to name a few. Now I don't watch anything on TV except Are You Being Saved? My favourite series and wanted to know your thoughts on the remake. Um, thoughts on the remake? I I don't know. It's, it's a funny time really because the BBC have announced all these kind of new episodes of classic uh, sitcoms like Porridge, Are You Being Saved? Um, and a few others that I can't remember the name of right now. So it's, you know, it's a very unusual thing to do. I mean, remakes aren't unusual as such, but uh, these were these were so, such character pieces. You know, some of them old actors were really quite unique in their way, in their delivery. So I'm not sure how it, it's really going to play these days. I, I think, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I don't think British sitcoms are the best at the moment, you know. They had their time with things like Only Fools and Horses and, and a few others, but I don't watch any now because I, I just don't think they're really funny. So, you know, I'll, I'll watch them out of curiosity and, and see how they go. Okay, he says, uh, except for Are You Being Saved and Columbo and Doc Martin, honestly, there's nothing else on TV for me to watch or that I'm interested in. As far as the Prime Mover, I like the episode because how likeable the telekinetic man was even though he was around the other guy who wanted to use his powers for gain you could tell he was a good friend and a nice guy after the other two characters get married it seems his friend would change his ways i know you dislike the episode 22 and i don't know if you are a religious man but i've had experiences where i had premonitions and when i didn't listen to them i regretted it so i can relate to it also when i saw the nurse Flight attendant, I thought she was the most beautiful woman I ever saw in TV, and I saw this a couple of years ago. Okay, and he goes on to say, Am I the only one that was upset 
with Mr. Dingle the Strong since the Martians and Venusians in this episode look different than the ones in the episode where the guy revealed his third eye and he was Venusian. Either way, keep up the good work. Thanks, Nick. So a good cross-section of uh, topics there from Nick, so thank you for that. Okay, our friend Mark Slade says, Hi Tom, I listened to the podcast you did on Static and you said the next episode is about the Prime Mover. I wanted to let you know that this episode is one of my favourites, Mr. Denton on Doomsday and The Hunt and the Penny for Your Thoughts in that order. Not only is the story marvellous, based on a short by George Clayton Johnson, but one of Beaumont's best scripts. The interplay between Ace and Jimbo to me is one of the best examples of deep friendship on the show. The acting by Buddy Ebsen with his R. Shucks mannerisms is a great compliment to the surly, impatient Ace. Also wonderfully played by Dane Clark. I love how the magic that is presented in this episode has rules for which if you examine all of George Clayton Johnson's stories and scripts for The Twilight Zone, there are rules for the weirdness to happen or unhappen to his characters. I always go back to The Twilight Zone whenever I have trouble with a story, and for some reason, even if the story has nothing to do with that type of fantasy, it helps me to figure out how to proceed with it. Thanks for keeping the podcast going. I always learn something new when I listen to it. Thank you, Mark. Now, by rules, are we talking that um, how Jimbo loses his powers? Is that is that what we're talking about? Um, because I suppose it is open to interpretation. Does he lose his powers or does he just say he's lost his powers? I took it to mean that he had not really lost his powers. He was just saying that because he realized things were getting out of control and he needed to bring Ace back down to Earth. But, uh, you know, there's a there's a case to be said that maybe it was, you know, those rules changing things. I don't know, but, uh, you know, thanks for your feedback, Mark. Okay, before I go, I would just like to say thank you to ZenBeginner33 for a new review on US iTunes. And they've slowed down a bit of late because I haven't been putting out as many episodes recently purely because it's the summer you know i've got more commitments in the summer there's things like holidays and putting that time in is a bit more difficult but bear with me you know i'll, I'll always come back and i am committed to getting these episodes done and you know under my belt so if you can take the time to put a review or a rating on itunes it, it really does help the show and i would really appreciate it so before I go, I'll just make quick mention of, you know, there's a couple of landmarks coming up for the Twilight Zone podcast. There is the 100th episode coming up, and there is also the end of season two. Now, maybe not as quickly as I'd hoped, because these seasons are just so long, but um, I did mention in a brief infocast, you know, a couple of things that get people involved with the show. And the first one was a short story competition for the 100th episode. And if you are a writer and you can write a short story in the same vein as The Twilight Zone, then I will read it out on the show as that 100th episode special. You know, I've had some entries in and they're very good. I might even end up doing two. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, if you've got a short story that you want me to read out on the podcast, it's got to be a Twilight Zone-esque story then send it over to tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com or if you want to get involved in the end of season two 
celebrations. I'm going to have on separate um, calls. I'm going to have a, a few listeners on. I haven't decided how many, and we'll just have you know short conversations about season two, and it'll be a series of questions that I will know in advance that hopefully might generate some discussion. So it's going to be you know what's your favourite episode in season two, and so on, so on. You know some some easy questions to to get some people involved with the show and all you need to be able to do is talk to me via skype either by a good skype connection on your computer or your phone and we will um we will have a chat about some twilight zone and again if you want to go into the hat for that one email me at tom at the twilight zone podcast.com okay that is enough from me next time on the show we're going to be looking at the episode long distance call and i'll speak to you then Thank you.